morning. Welcome to the Old School podcast about the American education system, its characteristics, its traits, its problems, deficiencies, demerits, flaws, um, just general shortcomings and weaknesses, and also foibles, but also possible solutions. Good morning, Herr Dr. Bourgeois. Herr Miller, how are you doing this fine Sunday morning? I'm doing great. I got problems, though. Uh, okay. Let's hear it. Well, as you know, I drove to Florida over the break, over the Thanksgiving break. Which this break? You get so many as a teacher. Thanksgiving. <laughs> 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 Let me tell you something, buddy. I'm hard at it. So, uh, back to the salt mines tomorrow. But uh, oh, wow. But nevertheless, so I was driving to and fro Florida, <laughs> and it dawned on me. What are you laughing about? To and fro Florida. I like that. Yes. So I was driving to and fro uh, Florida and I, it dawned on me something. And that is I have serious doubts that your typical American driver knows how to drive on an interstate. You're just discovering that now or it took you a trip to Florida for like 25 hours or whatever it took to figure yeah. it out. It's not that I just just figured it out. It's just as I just realized the enormity, the scale of this deficiency that Americans seem to have on the highways and byways of the United States. And because of that, and here's here's the more problematic trend. Not only do the Americans not know how to drive, or some of them don't, some of them are excellent drivers, but the mainstay the ones you could always depend on for following the rules of the law was the truck drivers. Okay. And it seems like the truck drivers today have lost, maybe it's a new batch and they were never taught the right way to drive, but it's, 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 it was annoying. It was dangerous at times. It was dangerous. So, so if it sounds like a, an example is in order because you're making a blanket statement. I know you would want to flesh that out a little bit. Okay. Well, here's your here's your example. Thank you. So, for example, when you are driving, when you are cruising, the right lane is where you're supposed to be. The left lane is for passing, and for some reason, it seems as almost as if people have come to a general conclusion that the left lane is now the cruising lane and the right lane is for passing. And I think that's confusing some of our newer truck drivers as well. So they're passing on the right? They're uh, passing on the right. They're passing on the left. I saw one guy pass on the side of the road. It was, it was a pale male experience on the interstates going to and from Florida. And then, I mean, just then you just have like the regular stuff that's that's quasi almost homicidal in its in potential impact. You got a person driving, oh, I don't know, 85 miles an hour with a phone six inches from their face. Okay. They are basically at the helm of a missile <laughs> that could wipe out small villages and they have no idea what's happening around them. Zero. And it makes you realize that while I may know how to drive, and listen, I'm not putting myself up there as the paragon oh, no, no. of driving abilities. I, I know this. I've been with you. But that said, <laughs> I'm a damn sight better than some of the yahoos I saw on the roads when I was driving to and from Florida. 
we need this is a this is potentially a national emergency. It is it is a miracle the likes of which have started small religions that we have not had massive accidents strewn about the uh, the highways and byways of the United States, and we probably have. But it just seems to me like a potential national crisis. Well, I, I, I was thinking that you were, you know, knowing your background, I, I was thinking that you were going to say that people out there were driving too slowly for your liking. Um, well, no, I mean, the, the problem is not people driving slowly because there is a designated spot for you to kind of piddle along, yeah. even though that in and of itself presents its own dangers. That's the right lane. But when you're doing it like in the left lane or in the middle lane, that's where you could that's where you have a, even a greater possibility of causing an accident. So, so are you with me? Well, I'm, I'm trying to figure out because I like to putter along in the middle lanes uh, <laughs> because if I'm in the right lane, I'm having to deal with people merging in. Um, and it's sort of the lesser of evils, but the far left lane, if there are three, tend to, I'm not fast enough usually, and I get people honking and, and all of that, but, but I'm, you I'm do understand it's easier to merge into a lane that's going relatively speaking slower. Yeah, I, th I think so. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm an advocate of going back to 55 miles an hour and, uh, no, 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 that's, that's I, I was, outrageous. I was, I was thinking about running for mayor or something <laughs> with that as my platform. That's it. We need to slow down. And, and, and it's more of a, um, I, I guess you would say a utilitarian argument, you know, that there would be fewer deaths, uh, which is a good thing. And, and insurance money would be saved. And overall, we're not getting there that much faster if, if we drive 80 as opposed to 55, because 80 means 90 for, for most people. So I say stop it. And then uh, you know, maybe people would be just because they love their community and uh, they, they would just slow down automatically. I know I would. Let me tell you something. If you ran for city council <laughs> under that platform. Yeah, I would have your you vote. Would, you would be the Andrew Yang or Tulsi Gabbard of <laughs> that particular race. You'd be like one of the first ones out. And then everyone will say, hey, do you remember there was a doctor that was running sometime somewhere? Because let me tell you something. You know what happens when the system works well that's called the autobahn and you and i have been on the autobahn it's not that it doesn't work well either it's i mean There's, you're talking about missiles they, their missiles are going about twice as fast as ours yes but they don't have the car accidents that we do because they, everybody understands the rules yeah, but they have them, and then there's like death and destruction. I mean, they, okay, there's going to be death. There's going to be death and destruction, no matter what. The question is, how do you minimize it? So, so why are you in such a hurry? What What's wrong with slowing it down to fifty five? It would solve a lot of problems, except for the fact that you would drive everyone insane. That's <laughs> <laughs> not my problem. Listen, when I was in Iceland, so that ring road that they have in Iceland, and they make a big deal about it when you rent a car in Iceland. They say, don't. Don't speed because they, they look for tourists and don't speed. Okay. It's very, very strict. And the speed limit amounts to about 50 miles an hour. I love it. Yeah. That's crazy. No, it doesn't. It's, I mean, is it worth people dying on the roads? I mean, you're going to have just for time just to get there a little bit earlier. You know, and now, I was, I will say that the only justification for the 50 mile an hour speed zone 
in Iceland is that you are, for the most part, dealing with a two-lane road. Sure. But, even, but I mean, it just it's just insanely slow by today's standards. If you're out, if you're out like in West Texas, did you know there's a road in West Texas that has an 85 mile an hour speed limit sign? Okay. Because the, you can't really hurt anybody out there. What I'm saying is, is that in general, it may, what we have realized is that it's not the speed that burns gasoline. It's the changing of speeds that can sometimes burn gasoline inefficiently. And yeah. so, you well, drive consistently at 55, you drive consistently at 75, you're not really causing that much more problems. Well, I don't trust um, most <laughs> people, except maybe you and me, to drive 75 or 70 <laughs> or even above 60. Uh, I don't think these people, I mean, I mean, your argument early on, you know, a long time ago when we started this conversation was that people can't freaking drive anymore. And so suddenly right. you're making an argument that, but let's get to let them go 75, maybe 85 in the right circumstance. I would say that they, they, they lost that, right? Cause they're not, they're not good drivers anymore. Because the issue is not how fast they're driving, it's right. how they're driving. They're, and, and is it just that one thing that I mean, two things? Well, that's, that's a big thing though. That's a big thing. Certainly, you would say that driving with your cell phone six inches from your face is at the very least problematic. Um, but there's no, I mean, I guess on some roads, they're, they're saying the less left lane is for passing. Um, it is. But, well, but no, it isn't. It, it's, a, it, it's common law. It's something It's a, in most cases, it's not, you're not going to get pulled over for that. So, so it, no. So, but, but many people drive there because it's a little smoother. You know, you get these bumpy roads, they just kind of sit there. Um, I'm, I'm sure you could ask some of these drivers why they cruise along <laughs> slowly in the left lane. And they probably say, well, we're, we're all here to annoy Mr. Miller. And we know he's coming. <laughs> That's right. Everyone leave a comment. Oh, hang on a second. We haven't created the comments. No. We haven't enabled the comment section. Yeah, that's <laughs> all right. Well, forget forget I said anything. No, uh, I, li I like the like the argument, but um, but we need a national we need a national conversation. Right <laughs> after all the other national conversations that we need, we well, also need one on this. Well, I'm throwing my hat in the ring. Okay, here we go. Let's slow go. it down. Weren't we happier in the 1970s? I think so. Yes, but I would say it had to do with a lot more other things besides just what speed we were going. Well, so. and back, but back then your cars were made out of steel, and they were yes. a lot more dangerous uh, than today, <laughs> even at 55. So what are you going to uh, do? What are you going to do? What is the motivation behind all this? Oh, that was a good transition. Um, Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you're, follow, you're following rules. Uh, we would like people to be motivated for uh, maybe a more altruistic reason that they they want to drive the speed limit up you know because of their community and they want to keep their community safe as opposed to self-interest where you want to get there as quickly as you can and pass as many people as possible and that then begs the question what is the motivation of the average student you know not too long ago uh, fairly recently you wrote a review of a book by edward desi DC. DC. Just think of the letters D and C and put them next yeah. to each other. Okay. Yeah. 
I don't think I'll mention his name again, but if I ever do, I'll keep that in mind. DNC. <laughs> said it. I said DC. <laughs> anyway, you wrote a review of his book. I think you gave it like two stars. Which, no, what I didn't. happened? We don't have star rankings when you do a book review. That's not what it is. It's not oh. Amazon here. It's <laughs> okay. a serious book, and I wrote about it. Yeah. So um, he, he, along <laughs> with a gentleman named, was it Richard Ryan? Yes, spelled like or pronounced Ryan. Like yes, you. I knew how to say Ryan. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, Richard uh, Ryan and uh, yes. Edward uh, oh, yeah. Decky uh, has written a book. Yes. They, they didn't they, write. They, the they, 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 they haven't read that. Uh, is the one that read, wrote the book. Quit but, uh, Let's quit it. Just quit it. <laughs> okay. So anyway, DC DC has written a book and it has to, it is based upon research that he and Richard Ryan are known for and that you uh, are also known for with regards to motivation theory and what, uh, what empowers kiddos to do well or not do well. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what their motivational theory is? Um, Sure. This, uh, the review is for, uh, um, for the classical education review. And, and that's just what they do is have, have people review books and also connect it um, you know, to, you know, to classical education and, and the implications for that. So this is an older work, uh, 1995, but the, the theory is called self-determination theory and it's a motivational theory. I use the word theory a lot now. Um, mm-hmm. So his his question, the title is "Why We Do What We Do." Um, there, there's a everyday understanding of motivation and the idea that you can motivate people. And what DC is is talking about is how can you create conditions where people can motivate themselves. And you know, we also, in everyday language, think about how motivated you are as, as something that, that you can say I'm highly motivated or I'm not motivated at all. And um, I guess one of the tenets of this, this book and the theory is, is that it's, it's not about how much motivation, but it's about the, the quality of motivation. You know, are you motivated internally or is it because you're going to get a, um, a gold star or, or a good grade or, or something like that? So we're addressing the why um, has a qualitative term, you know, as opposed to let's increase motivation in general. Right. So how does that apply to, because what they, what they are doing is they're talking about this as I understand it. They're talking about this as kind of like a big picture sort of thing, as far as what motivates people to do things, you know, what motivates individuals to learn something or what have you, you've narrowed it down to talk about not just, students but also teachers as well and their abilities to engage with material or their inabilities to engage with material so how do you take those ideas and how have you kind of applied them to within the school environment like the high school environment it's a complicated question because um we we would call it a motivational orientation how you approach things and, and what is it that drives you it, it, it's very specific you know so it's not a fixed disposition where here's somebody who's an intrinsically motivated person mm-hmm. you, know, you know so i can't even i can't say that about myself it depends <laughs> on the domain you know and, and the and day I, that's right absolutely <laughs> am i motivated to do this podcast well yes because it's really fun um but but it gets complicated when it's a a task that may not be fun or, or not be 
uh, interesting. And, you know, if we jump into school, lots of things we do in school are not uh, inherently interesting uh, as well. Um, so I, I think when you look at motivation, it's not just in, in general about your, your orientation, but your orientation on a specific task, uh, a very specific task. And it changes. And it's not a binary um, idea that I'm in internally or intrinsically motivated or I'm extrinsically. But it, there's a continuum in there. And, and it, um, ideally, uh, there, there's, a, there's a mechanism where you can uh, internalize and, and change the the quality of, of your motivation over time and and I think that's in, in some ways the the point of education is to uh, help help children you know want to learn and then we've talked about that in almost every podcast that the sometimes these uh, social factors you know like the way parents raise their children and the way that teachers, uh, teach um, students um, can have an undermining effect, and it's a unintended consequence. You know, they're not reading Ed DC, and and they're you know, and so in many cases, what what is considered a best practice, a best parenting practice, um, particularly incentivizing and praising, um, does have some unintended consequences, and and what it has it has an effect of creating a controlling environment where um, the I mentioned motivational orientation, it can change and become uh, less intrinsic. And that's really what we see in schools. So you're saying that one's orientation in regards to motivation is a highly malleable one. Yeah, that, that, that's absolutely true. That, and so by uh, creating a an environment that's you know, the the term that DC uses is autonomy supportive, um, giving choices, taking someone's perspective, giving not a, a controlled environment. Um, you you make it more possible, but 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 there are so many things that are just part of school, and and you know there you know I've done some research, and and there's also some long, longitudinal research that shows that academic motivation drops. From third grade uh, through eighth grade, and then there's a little bit of a increase, maybe in eleventh grade. Um, you know, and, and my work has shown even a, a consistent drop um, through throughout high school. Um, but but starting with students who are very uh, interested and love school, and then it drops. And so the question is, are the what what practices happen at those crucial times when it really starts to drop? And it's the the testing, the the grading we we shift and. Um, According to self-determination theory, people, humans, this is a human theory. It's not an educational theory. It, it, it applies across all domains. Um, but the people are inherently curious about their environment. They want to learn about it. They want to manipulate it. Um, they, they want to understand. And what we're doing to that drive to understand uh, in a school setting is um, we, we control it and, and eventually we, we choke it out with, with some of these practices that, you know, you know, teachers, you know, and we've talked about it in some of our podcasts think are, are this is the way to do it. You know, we want to pay children to read. We want to reward. We want to turn our classroom into jeopardy. We want to <laughs> talk about, uh, tests and say the word, this is on the test or the phrase 40 times a day, you know? Right. So, so what that does is have a cumulative effect. And then uh, I would suggest that the parenting 
uh, style does the same thing. And so you mm. can double down on rewards. And when a kid gets home and if you're lucky enough to talk to them at the dinner table and ask them <laughs> how they're doing in school, they're going to give you a number and they're not going to mm -hmm. tell you what they're learning. They're going to say, I'm, I'm, I'm at 85. Well, before we get into, before we narrow down more, burrow down more into what education and sometimes what parents do to kind of shoot ourselves in the foot in, in this regard, is there a point of no return? Is there a point where a kid has been conditioned so much towards a particular motivational orientation that you can't change it? Um, you're, you're thinking about students who are kind of grade mongers who, who have just that becomes their whole sense, their so, whole identity. Their identity, yes. Yeah, is the class ranking, which, you know, I'm number two, I'm number four. Uh, but is there any saving of those folks? I mean, can can we, could we change them with the right, uh, you know, kind of methodology, the right, you know, kind of conditioning so that when they get to university, they are not like that? Or is there so much baggage? Is there so much kind of emotional tie-in to, whatever orientation they have that it just simply can't be changed past a certain point. Um, I, I think it's a, it, it, like you said, it's malleable. It depends on the teacher and what they're doing. I mean, take those same kids who are competing for class ranking and, and you know who, who they are. You sure. Picture some of them. Uh, those same kids are in band, you know, where they have a different motivation. And, and, and there is a competitive element to, to music, something I don't really support it's at a certain level. I mean, it, it helps um, musicians get, get to a level of competence, which is really important. Um, but it depends on what they're doing, you know? And so, so it's, it's not something across all tasks and um, they're going to encounter different environments. But, but I, I think you're right to an extent that um, at the university, it doesn't stop. You know, mm -hmm. you, you know, and we've both taught university courses and going over our syllabus is like you have a group of lawyers in front of you asking, <laughs> you know, so, so this test is going to happen and how is it weighted and, and what happens if I stub my toe on the way to the, the you know, the test and um, can I have a retake, <laughs> you know, all, all these things. So it doesn't change. And, and it's even the same with the doctoral work. You know, I've, I teach doctoral students and um, they're definitely focused on that, but, but as a teacher, you know, and you, you do the same thing. We don't bring up the grade very much, you know, we don't bring up the test and we, and we're trying to do whatever we can to press back on that. And so I, I think, you know, there's always hope. It depends on, uh, the domain, the, the subject. And I think the teacher has a lot or the professor has a lot to do with that. Is it a controlling environment or is it autonomy? supportive because eventually the the incentives go away you know if you're pe right. paying somebody to read a book um that that may work and it's you know it can be very effective they compete over the summer i think i mentioned this in the article mm. and um but what happens when when you stop paying them uh, eventually you know maybe the motivation to read it all uh, will go away and i think that communicates something that's confusing, particularly to a young child, because this is already fun. You know, now I'm getting paid for it. And normally you get paid for things, you know, that aren't as fun as reading. Um, well, it's interesting because one of the reasons why I asked the last question about mm -hmm. at what point does it become too late? Do, do the attitudes ossify and you basically deal with a kid that cannot be reached? And 
it mainly because I've come across it. And I don't know if it's because I'm a lone voice in the wilderness who's saying this and uh, it's not enough to offset everything else they hear. But I remember I have a, um, I, I teach primarily, I teach AP US history, but I also teach one section of what is referred to as on level world history. And this is basically the non honors, non AP version of a course. And I gave them a project to do. And one of the first questions, of course, that was asked because the project was going to be a test grade was what is the rubric? I said, there is no rubric. Uh, and who asked you this? A kid? Or yeah, a kid. A kid. One of the kids asked me, I said, uh, is, uh, can we get the rubric for this? And I said, <laughs> I said, there is no rubric. You know, there is no bathroom. There's no rubric. You know what? Yeah. And they were, some of them were puzzled. <laughs> others to suggest they even had an opinion would suggest they were paying attention. You know, it gets, it depends on the day, but you're, you're you know, the people, unfair now. <laughs> yeah, the people who were paying attention, they were, they looked puzzled. And I said, listen, I said, I said, I want you to explore here. I don't want you to kind of tick boxes. I don't want the same project from every single person. I want to see yeah. where you take this. And but of course, it's so different from everything else they get. You know, you could very easily say that the that the lesson was lost on them. And that's why I guess I kind of wondered, you know, is there a point where they're just beyond they cannot be reached? You know, well, I, I, I mean, the, the schools definitely ramp it up, you know, and it seems to increase as they get specific subjects because then it segments the the knowledge um and and you have your posting grades you know for the parents and for the kids so they can monitor it so you're definitely pushing against the tide hmm. um, but um i i still think i think you do it i mean you you actually have students who are following and and, and becoming part of the discussion and it's, and it's not done to to increase their grade i guess some some do but um it's not so transactional so I, I, I think that um, it, it's a, a challenge of, of teachers because here's what happens, you know, particularly, well, all teachers, but particularly younger teachers, they use that test and the, the extrinsic motivator to control their class. It's, mm -hmm. it's what keeps them, um, you know, in, in, you know, keeps their, their students in line and, and gives them power because they hold the test in their hand and they also hold the grade book. And, and so these are, um, scarce resources, you know, so the, it, it, it's a, it's a bit of power that they wield and it's not through, um, great teaching. Sometimes it's, it's hmm. using those, those tactics. So let's talk about the tactics. You know, you kind of mentioned a few of them briefly, uh, and, you know, a few minutes ago, but also looking at it kind of more broadly, we think about, you know, what do teachers do, but also us as parents, uh, what do parents do? And I imagine this may be more um, applicable in what uh, Dr. Uh, DC and Dr. Ryan have done over the years, just like, in, just like a general conditioning of how kids are raised and how kids are brought up and how they're conditioned and what have you. So, I mean, is there is there like a big ticket item as far as something that parents do and then something that teachers do? that can have a pretty detrimental effect on how kids orient themselves from a motivational point of view. I think the, the big 
um, the big ticket item has to do with the perception of the child or, or the adult, if you're in a work cir circumstance or whatever it is, but are you perceiving the, the these interactions as controlling or, or supportive autonomy supportive? Um, because it, I mean, almost it, it, it's better to, to look at examples, but you know, you see so many parents who want their children to do well in sports. I think it's a, it's a fair example of how, you know, they're, they are there to be supportive, but mm -hmm. they're also, you know, either perceived as supportive or, or controlling. And, and many parents take it too far very quickly and, and they start to micromanage the, the child and offer incentives. And, and suddenly that it does become controlling. And, and so there's some psychic dissonance um, for, for doing some activity that they enjoy, but, uh, now it's competitive and competition, you know, has a lot of benefits, but it also uh, serves, you know, functionally as a, a controlling device. Um, so, so between that and the incentives and the, the control and just the, the tone of it, you know, the, this can be the same thing can be accomplished in an autonomy supportive way, you know, where you talk, have conversations and, um, and, and, and the type of feedback is important. And this is true for, teachers as well as parents, uh, the idea of just saying good job uh, can be controlling or not. Um, but but the better approach um, to create the sense of autonomy is to explain, you know, give, give informational feedback or better yet, ask a question. You know, how are you feeling about this? What were you thinking when you did that? Rather than what were you thinking when you did that? Mm -hmm. So the, it's the same words, but it's about the tone and um, perceptions. And, and I think when you're in a classroom, the you know, many students are bracing for control. I mean, that's what they expect. On you see it on the first day, you know, right. you, you're, they're checking you out, they're sizing you up. You pass out the syllabus, and you know, we're, we're, it, it's kind of a uh, some some activity that that's happening uh, that that's not teaching. You know, it, it's a uh, you know what are, what's what's the game going to be here? But but I think the the idea of perceptions is, is really important because you could have students who perceive the here Miller style of teaching is, is really controlling and others considered autonomy supportive. So a lot of it has to do with what they bring to the classroom also. So, you know, from a teacher standpoint, you know, one of the things that I do in the first day is I don't hand out a syllabus. Good for you. Wow. And I don't hand out uh, classroom expectations. And I do recall uh, a couple of years ago, I had a student that asked me about that. He said, you know, what are your expectations as far as what I should be doing in the class? I said, what do you think you should be doing in the class? <laughs> you know, and it, it, there's, there's times when kids ask me questions that I feel like my, not that I was ever a rabbi, but, you know, yeah. maybe something in the DNA, but there's like, there, there's like this kind of rabbi like response, you know, you give a kind of a Talmudic shrug and then, then you look at them and say, you know, what do you think you should be doing? And it's a, it's for the student. I think they, if I can read them correctly, I think they find the answer very unsatisfying. I find it quite satisfying because I, you know, and that's not to say that I am that, um, you know, I'm, I'm not that, that way every single day in a classroom, you know, I, you know, you do, you know, when you follow a particular curriculum, you do have to kind of take the bull by the horn sometimes. But I think every time I can, 
I put it back on them. I think one of the reasons why I do a discussion oriented classroom is to put it on them. And what are you getting out of this? What do you take from this? And I think, you know, of course, I think some of the kids just assume I stop the discussion and just tell them what they need to know. But then again, uh, I find that unsatisfactory on a couple of levels, not least of which, you know, professionally and otherwise. From a parental point of view, I think about the notion of trying to get my eight-year-old to help out around the house. Now, you, you talk about the the kind of um, the autonomy. What is the term you used again that uh, Dr. DC and Ryan have discussed? Well, it, it, it's autonomy support as opposed to control, which you know you see in the classroom giving the rules on on day one. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and and so you're already starting with autonomy support. But go on, you know, about the the, the chores. Well, I mean, I, I remember when we first started talking to my daughter about the notion of chores. We talked about the idea, you know, that you know, a a household works because everybody does something that supports the household, you know, and, um, you know, and invariably, you know, I, you know, she would ask for like an example. And I said, well, an example might be you cleaning your room. And she says, well, why do I have to clean my room? And I said, why do you think someone might ask, (laughs) you know, again, it goes back to putting the question back on them as, you know, and again, and this this should not be this should not be understood as some foolproof way of getting your kids to do chores in an intrinsically motivated sort of way, because I find that I'm having this conversation regularly with my daughter, but I think it it, it always amounts to having her to be able to understand, not to me, not for me to make her understand, and it's difficult. And there are times you're sitting there going. I don't know what the hell Dr. DC and Dr. Ryan think this is working, you know, but, but at the same, at the same time, you, you come to realize that it may have more to do with, you know, your uh, limitations as a parent or as a teacher uh, than it does about the theory itself. Cause the theory itself seems sound. Yeah. I can picture the, you just make the request, but yell it really, really loud. <laughs> <laughs> That's really probably how a lot of parents, uh, would proceed, but you know, some of it is developmental. You know, you're not going to have a six or seven year old wonder, well, what, what about the utility of this? <laughs> Everybody didn't do their chores. You know, we, we would have a terrible uh, world because nothing would, would get done. Should I have my mother or my father do chores for me? Wouldn't I feel guilty about that? Uh, they do enough for me. They're so kind. Gosh, I'm not <laughs> But but we want them to get to that point, you know. Yes. And, and a lot of parents use guilt. I mean, <laughs> use it really, really well. I grew up in a Jewish household. We we uh, us in Catholics. I think they specialize in guilt. Yeah. Or or I mean, we we we've talked about motivational techniques, but punishment is is something that you know it's it's not new. I mean, that's, no. <laughs> you know, and um, I mean, coming from the military, and they're they're not using autonomy supportive techniques to to the extent that no. we're talking about <laughs> they have other ideas too um, no, no lieutenant ever sat me down and said what do you think about this am i am i doing this right i mean how do you how do you perceive it well they might in a, in a ironic way while you're yes. doing push-ups. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but but it, it, it's hard because the the theory applies but it's different you know say with kindergarten students 
Mm-hmm. You know, that's where they have, uh, you know, lots of systems of behavior, you know, where you have color coding and you have class, full class rewards. They write the word recess on the board and then they erase a letter as somebody does something stupid. And then everybody yells and goes crazy when they <laughs> lose recess because of one year coming back of <laughs> the classroom. Um, but the I- idea is that over time, uh, and I think that's that's the key here. Uh, don't try this at home, but uh, you, you need to gradually remove the rewards as, as people, as you know, as children get older, mm-hmm. because eventually, you know, they're gonna be, you know, in an apartment with chores, you know. Um, so, so that I think that that's what happens, but or that's what maybe should happen according to the theory. But what we do in, in a school environment is, in many cases, the opposite. We double down, and we, it becomes a more incentivized environment more competition more surveillance more rules um so we're, we're taking something that's natural I'm, I'm getting back to the idea of curiosity and learning you know, we're built to learn that's why we've survived because we can do that and we're, we're compromising that um systematically from from a lot of different perspectives and it's a cultural thing because you know this conversation i think a lot of people will understand it but but at the same time, people are behaving in, in a very different way, a different approach right. uh, with, with you know teaching and parenting particularly. Well, one of the things I thought about is you were talking uh, about, you know, the notion of what an orientation might look like in kind of real terms. I couldn't help but think about the math program that um, that was mentioned by um, um, uh, shoot. He's the guy that we enjoy also very much. Um, we talk, enjoy Who's that? Say, talking about the political, not political, but kind of social educational philosopher uh, that, that, you know. Neil uh, Postman? Neil Postman, yeah. Right. And so, right. Well, Neil Postman talking about the idea that, you know, if you, if you as a school district spend a boatload of money on some sort of math program, and then one of the, one of the uh, advertisement bullet points is that, you know, if the kid wanted to wake up at one o'clock in the morning, they could do math. You know? <laughs> and Postman suggested that if you're not inclined naturally to wake up at one o'clock in the morning to do math, there being a program that makes it easier to do it isn't really going to work. And if you are the kind of person who's naturally inclined to wake up at one in the morning to do math, which I think is a warning sign on, on multiple levels. But either way, if you're if you're one of those people inclined to do it, you don't need the program to motivate you to do it. And so. And uh, we, we do kind of shoot ourselves in the foot about, you know, in regards to what we push, how we push it and the money we spend. You know, you think about the money that's spent on various, you know, programs du jour. Uh, and it's and it's simply it's simply ill advised spending. But I think I want to take this one step further because well, I think well, go, one back, of, go back, okay. go back to the to the math, because the. There's one other point on that, that these online math programs are built, they have gamification built into them, you know, and, and I maybe have mentioned this before, but I made a, gave a talk at a company that, you know, did that, built, built a program as a pretty big company. And I talked to all their staff, I mean, not only in person, but virtually. So a lot of people there. And, and I use this theory and, and saying what, what's happening when you're gamifying and you're incentivizing something like math. You know what, what's the long-term repercussion? And and so my 
counsel. They said, well, should we just all go home? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Um, and I don't know if they're in business anymore. Uh, no, I'm kidding. But, um, but, but the idea I, I gave them is that, sure, you know, you need to build competence in some, some of these, you know, they, and, but they're, they're trying to, you know, keep somebody's attention in a way that has nothing to do with the, the content. They're using other things, badges, competition, and eventually you have to do math. You know, right. maybe not at one in the morning, but, <laughs> but 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 they're 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 hurting themselves in the long run. And I think you know, once you offer a carrot, the the problem is is that you're constantly in search of a bigger carrot to offer. You know, you mm-hmm. go down a slippery slope to the point where it doesn't matter how big the carrot is. Eventually, at some point, the the, the person will just disengage because yeah, it's, it's it's not interesting anymore. Right, it's like a drug. Unless you take that carrot and hit the kid over the head with it, <laughs> then you're using a different motivational technique. But I, I think so. I think um, people, you know, the expected reward, you know, that's a contingent reward and expected reward. That that's what can be perceived as as controlling and has all these undermining long term effects. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is one type of uh, reward, I guess. Uh, uh, or even praise that 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 really does help motivationally. I mentioned uh, in, uh, informational praise, explaining, talking it through. But the mm-hmm. other thing is unexpected, and this is for business owners out there and um, principals. You know, you know, rather than you know, you merit, know who you are. So yeah, but rather than you know, merit pay and and you know competitions, you know, with your between departments to get you know, some gift certificate or something. Um, give it um, unexpectedly um, to everybody, you know, but something unexpected, what that does is builds trust, it builds culture, it creates connection. It's only positive, you know, and so, you know, don't use it as an opportunity to um, to narrow what people are doing and, and build these, you know, you know, double down again on, on competition. Or, um, but unexpected is, is very positive. Um, and, you uh, and it's motivationally sound because it's not contingent. They're not expecting it. Um, and they won't expect it next year necessarily. It's very different than a planned bonus, but it has a, a real positive effect. It does. And unfortunately, though, this is not how it typically plays out. I think I gave the example one time of being in a restaurant. I was by myself and, and I was having breakfast and and that the breakfast was over. And I thought it was pretty satisfactory. I liked it. And then the waitress came up and she said rather rather enthusiastically for seven in the morning, as I recalled, uh, she asked me, well, how'd you like that breakfast? I said, it's, I said, it's not bad. And she said, well, I don't like not bad. I said, well, <laughs> do you like hyperbole? I mean, oh it, 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 it can't be the greatest breakfast. I mean, come on, what are you, what are you, what, what are you expecting from me? And so I think, it, I think, I think, I think it was that. I can't leave you alone with anybody. <laughs> Why is it, I, did, I think it colors how we talk about a lot of things. And it, it, you know, and it's one of the reasons why what you talk about a dying um, kind of a dying field of endeavor. I think about commentators and I think about, you know, uh, talk show hosts or what have you. It's just, you know, it gets to the point where they they're running out of adjectives to overblow whatever they're talking about. And so, and it, it infects every bit of human communication or certainly has the power to, you know, with regards to praise and, and how we look at motivation. 
one of the things I was thinking about also was how this dynamic affects teachers. Um, not so much in how they interact with the students, but how they kind of motivate themselves. Um, I know you've done research where you looked at, you know, teaching efficacy and, and how teachers kind of see their job and look at their job. Um, how does this play out for them? Well, as an employee in any organization, you, you, you experience leadership and um, ideally you, you develop internal motivation because of the support of the leader and they're not micromanaging you. But, but schools, I think, are unique because mm -hmm. you have this cycle of control. I mean, it starts by the, the problem of having the, you know, the, the test scores aggregates, you know, in the newspaper. So suddenly the superintendent has all these uh, corruption pressures, pressures to take this, this measurement and, and turn it into a goal, you know, for, for their principles. And so they, they have a, a controlled environment, you know, and, and then it moves downward to, to teachers, you know, and so they suddenly, if they're worried about test scores, which they are, I mean, it's it's at the top of the list. Mm -hmm. uh, that's the test for them is to get your group of students to hit a certain mark or to have growth goals or whatever it is. And you're you're evaluated based upon that and incentivized and all these things. So suddenly with the pressures that the the faculty feel, they, they use similar techniques on on with on they actually do the same thing to their students and so I, I i think you know potentially breaking that chain with autonomy supportive teaching because here's the thing um using these strategies uh, it's been you know uh, associated with higher achievement you know students who are have a higher quality motivation also perform better and they mm -hmm. also are more creative um more risk-taking behavior all these these good things outcomes um, so it's not like you lose anything. You actually gain, gain a different type of, of student by, by doing this. It just takes a little bit more time. It's a little bit more messy. Um, and it's like you can't complimenting the, the waitress, you know, about, about the food, you know, <laughs> it's not bad. And, and maybe she didn't understand that. I, mean, I know for from you, that's high praise. You know, uh, when you say that's not bad, that means that's freaking good. Um, but but potentially a more autonomy support would be to say you know the it's, was I tasting green chilies in those eggs <laughs> I, I wonder about that uh, is this pesto the, is this yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's let's get the chef here please <laughs> um, sir <laughs> they come out taste the soup <laughs> what's wrong with the soup taste the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> come after you with a spatula what are you talking about <laughs> can we do we need to call security <laughs> <laughs> we'll have you move sir <laughs> well, <laughs> well it's, just, it's a it's a fascinating area of study and it's been done by many people over the years and and certainly dr dc and dr ryan and yourself you're contributing to the conversation not to you know blow smoke up your uh, uh at you but uh, oh. but no but the idea that this is this is important groundbreaking um uh, essential stuff that's being done i'm just not sure that anyone within the education realm right now has the ear for it and i don't think a lot of parents have the ear for it. i think some do and you're starting to see some of the reactions that parents are having to you know the the, the kind of things that are being leveraged to get kids to work uh, but if you were to provide a prognosis 
as to how this plays out. I mean, do you see, uh, is it a case of no one will be saved? Or, I mean, do you think it is possible that this argument can take? Um, I think it hit its high point, you know, meaning low point, you know, <laughs> at, you know when, when we had no child left behind, race to the top. Um, and I think that the, that we're taking a more holistic view and it often these things are driven by, you know, universities mm -hmm. and the fact that they're, you know, taking a second look at the SAT at, at student grades and, and, you know, that's going to have a, a, you know, for me, a, a, a positive effect because suddenly they're interested in not just that, that score. And, and they've found that those scores can be misleading. You know, they don't really predict anyway. Um, so, well, it does Look depend it. on it does depend on what it's replaced with. You know, the idea of, you know, what's better, the devil you know or the devil you don't know. I mean, you, you could get something worse. Uh, you you could, but but I, I think the the more measures that you have, multiple measures, and some of them qualitative, um, the better. So I, I think that there is a pushback, and certainly there's a pushback by educators on on testing. And states have scrambled. I mean, even Texas to to smooth out the, the corners a little bit. So, uh, it, I mean, initially, I, I think it was you know very pointed. You know, and and and, and now the, the you know the test score again is one out of many. You know, it's not just state test scores in in that evaluation of, of schools anymore because they get a rating, but the test score is still prominent. And so I, I think that yeah, there is there is a tend away from focusing on these these measures. Um, I, I don't know as far as teaching techniques. I think there there's going to be quite a lag there. But I, mm -hmm. I, yeah, that's kind of you know the business that, that I'm in. And so I assess all of that and, and look at um, the quality of student motivation and I think even more important um, teachers. You know, and, and why are they in, in the in the profession? Right. Um, so. It, yeah, it, it, it's it's there's nothing more fascinating than than the why, and, and often oh, we're yeah. so interested in outcomes, but that that why is really complicated. I, I you know we've been talking a lot about motivation, and there's not a motivation. There are motivations, and uh, you can't just characterize it as as this box, but it's really nuanced. And in fact, you you can have multiple motivations happening at once. I mean, you may be motivated to get a grade you, you're trying to get into a, a, a really top university and so that 98 in mr miller's class is really important but you also love the lectures and you love the content and want to continue it and so it's it's not dichotomous in any way it's 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 more than a moving target it's really complex and nuanced and i think that's one of the the problems when people try to dismiss elements of this or components of this and tried to dismiss like the entire approach. I, mm -hmm. we, you know, I've, I may have mentioned the story before, but you know, we shut down uh, in April of 2020 and then, you know, as far as like in-person instruction and then it went to like online. And when it went online, we were basically told that listen don't make these last month and a half about grades just mm -hmm. just get assignments or whatever the case may be yeah yeah I and, I and i remember one of my colleagues uh <laughs> said uh well i said you know because because naturally what happened is that a lot of kids kind of mailed it in yeah and someone said in a colleague suggested well there, there goes your idea about you know 
no grades. I said, well, I would suggest there's a lot more complicated factors here. I said, I don't think that this is the same thing at all. And so because it's such a nuanced conversation, and I think both in the attempts to try to implement aspects of it, thinking that you're fixing a problem or focusing on on certain aspects of uh, the overall theory and suggest that somehow it doesn't work. I think that that's very, it's very, it's very uh, symbolic of how we tend to address things these days, but it's also, it's also kind of a, a comment and an analysis that it doesn't hold water because you're not considering the entire picture. Yeah. And, and that's a I'm really telling, you know, why, why do we do it at all? If there's, you know, if we get, I mean, imagine, I mean, there's like this thing in cyberspace that's called a grading portal, you know, hmm. and you know, the students can view it, the, teachers obviously their parents and everybody and if you magically just turn that off <laughs> as a social <laughs> experiment and suddenly there's there are no grades and you know it, it's like taking the speed limit and reducing it to 55 there's going to be mayhem maybe but, <laughs> but, but there's something you know, nice tie-in, um, by the way. Yeah, well, I'm, I, somebody's got to wrap this thing up. <laughs> yeah, but uh, yeah, the world wouldn't cave in, and there are other ways to. And what if it was just a qualitative measure, and you let the teacher decide the grade? Just an idea. Um, so. Just a crazy thought. What? If? <laughs> well, I think it's. I think we've we've learned. If not, if we haven't learned anything. <laughs> we we've learned that that this is this is a conversation that's not over because there's just way too many um, kind of spurs that can be followed and can be uh, looked at and analyzed and talked about and and I it's it to me I, I get why you're so enthralled by the topic because it's a fascinating topic I mean there's just so there's so much to it that I mean you could easily see how someone can spend their entire life's work. As I believe, uh, if I if I remember conversations with you correctly, that Dr. DC and Dr. Ryan have done, but I mean, just the idea and others, you know, who have spent so much time looking at motivation and how it can help, you know, kind of shape what we do and how we do it. So, certainly not the last podcast we'll have dealing with motivation. I hope not. And and most uh, academics have one theory that they address throughout their career. I mean, many people out there have, have listened to many of these podcasts. And besides me trying to be funny and, <laughs> and do, do what I do, this theory permeates what I say. And so mm-hmm. go back and listen to every episode and think self-determination theory. Oh, yeah, he's not making this stuff up. Um, but it, but it's kind of a, a mindset that I have um, because it, it does explain. And I've, I've told, told stories about my own uh, academic and just you know my background and and there are applications to it so hopefully we maybe get a few converts or at least get some people to read but read the review and there there may be a way I'm going to try to do this where we turn this review into a link and put it into the um, podcast uh, I think we can do that you know particularly if you do it because you have technical skills that I may not hear Miller. Yeah, well, <laughs> I think, I think we can, we can link that article and we can also, okay. we can also uh, uh, link uh, if you want to hear more ideas about this. Uh, there is a book as it happens uh, that called uh, the center cannot hold a critical look at contemporary education written by yours truly uh, v- available uh, Amazon uh, for your, uh, reading pleasure. 
that will kind of give you kind of a broader look. And then you look at the article that Dr. Bourgeois has penned uh, regarding Dr. DC's latest work uh, to kind of zero in on, on some particular aspects of kind of the general ideas we present in the book. And so, yeah, everyone, you've got a lot of reading to do. There's a lot of homework you got going up, but uh, I don't want to hear any complaining about it. This is important stuff. And so there you go. I like it. Um, a shameless plug, but I, I think people people waste their weekends. If you think about it, they should be reading should be uh, read. all weekend. You know, <laughs> so you know who, who cares about sports or family barbecues? You know, get get to reading. All right. With that, I'm off to watch football. And so, um, oh, sorry, I kind of tipped my hand there a little bit. But uh, um, Dr. Bourgeois, I wish you a good week and adieu. Adieu, Herr Miller and Dacke. Thank you.